from kind of earliest days, I definitely felt, you know, the strength of community around me, um, why you had to invest in it. And I think it feels like actually a big coming home to come to a platform like Nextdoor, where everything we stand for is all about communities. You gotta pick yourself up, go backwards and slam yourself at the wall like 500 more times until the wall crumbles. 25% of middle school girls already believe they'll never achieve their dream career. career. Hi, I'm Kara Golden, founder and CEO of Hint. Hint. And you're listening to Unstoppable, a podcast spotlighting the journeys of inspiring entrepreneurs. I believe that at its core, leadership is about constantly learning from the people around you. And I'm so inspired by the conversations we're having in our upcoming episodes and can't wait to share them with you. This season, some of my guests include Rebecca Minkoff, fashion designer and founder of the Female Founder Collective, Diana Kapp, author of Girls Who Run the World, Andrew Dudham, founder of Hymns, and Eugene Rem, co-founder of Rumble Fitness, and much, much more. Plus, we ask the million-dollar question, what does it really take to be unstoppable? Let's find out. Hi, everybody. It's Kara Golden from Unstoppable, and I'm so excited to introduce you to my next guest, who is also a friend and a, and a neighbor sort of next door. Um, I'll give you a hint uh, about it. Wow, I just threw it all into one sentence there. Uh, Sarah Fryer is the CEO of Nextdoor and co-founder of another great group that I am going to get her to chat a little bit more about, Ladies Who Launch. And just a little bit about Sarah. So Sarah is the CEO of Nextdoor, the world's largest private social network for neighbors. And prior to Nextdoor, Sarah was the CFO at Square, another one of my favorite companies. Under Sarah's leadership, the company launched its initial initial public offering in 2015 and added 30 billion, whoa, crazy, in market cap, wow. Before Square, Sarah was Senior Vice President of Finance and Strategy at Salesforce, another one of my favorite companies. Uh, She's also held executive roles at Goldman and leadership positions at McKinsey in both London and South Africa. Um, a little other tidbit, she's from uh, Ireland and uh, we'll get her to talk about being an immigrant as well a little bit because I, I love that whole topic. And uh, she's also on the boards of Walmart and Slack, which is uh, super, super inspiring. So currently, Sarah is also the co-founder, as I mentioned, of Ladies Who Launch, a network that mentors and inspires women, entrepreneurs, and business owners along the way. And today, we're going to talk about how she got to where she is and what she learned along the way. So welcome, Sarah. (laughs) Thank you, Kara. And how fun to be interviewed by a neighbor, Um, someone I get to bump into on the trails all the time. So it's it's so fun. Well, I've been wanting to do this for a while, and and we're recording this during hopefully the last couple of weeks of shelter in place. Or maybe I'm being optimistic, but I'm uh, I'm hopeful. So I during our exercise and more than six feet away, I said to Sarah, "We've got to do this, and let's just do it over Zoom and get it going." Because I I think especially during times like this, hearing from somebody who is just such a leader will help us all. So, uh, so take me back a little bit to, you know, really like, where, where did you, I mentioned that you came from Ireland and, and you ended up coming over to the U.S. Tell me a little bit about that experience. Sure. I mean, I'll not worry you all too much, but yeah, I did grow up in Northern Ireland. I grew up during the Troubles. So I mean, one of the learnings for right now that I say a lot to my husband, um, as we worry about things like the impact of families and kids and so on, is kids are incredibly malleable. Um, they they bounce back. The human condition is such that we kind of bounce back from things, I believe, much faster than we often worry about. And so, you know, what Northern Ireland gave me was a lot of resiliency. It it also taught me a lot about community. Um, I, you know, I've talked to Lens and other places, but my mom was the local nurse in our community, so. She was, uh, in fact, the person who showed up when you were having your baby in a farm stuck in the middle of nowhere and you couldn't get to the hospital. 
my mom was right there to catch that baby for you. Um, and my dad was the personnel manager of the local mill, which is what our whole village was founded around. So from kind of earliest days, I definitely felt, you know, the strength of community around me, um, why you had to invest in it. And I think it feels like actually a big common home to come to a platform like Nextdoor, where everything we stand for is all about community. So Northern Ireland was certainly an interesting place in the 70s and 80s. I will tell you now, like my, my best friends are still there. And one of the silver linings of shelter in place has been how many house parties we've done, not quite Zooming, but we house party every Sunday morning. Um, they're all having drinks. Okay. <laughs> they're all having wine and I'm on coffee. I have thought to crack once in a while, but an 11 o'clock glass of wine feels a bit off. But they're also really good grounding in the midst of, you know, all the crazy of running businesses and so on. To just go back to those girlfriends that you had when you were literally one, two, three that stayed with you through 18 because they know you so deep in your soul. But I think it's a great way to kind of always bring yourself back to what's important in life. Thinking about what's for dinner, but you haven't had a minute to even think about it before now? Well, let's not make that mistake again. I have a tip for you. Factor. Stress-free, delicious, ready-to-eat meals, just perfect for spring and summer yumminess. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes or less. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, keto, vegan, veggie, or calorie smart. Factor has you covered. Discover more than 60 add-ons every week, too like breakfast and on-the-go lunch choices, snacks and beverages now too. Stay fueled and feel good all day long with whatever they are creating over at Factor for you. And the best part, each meal is ready to eat in just two minutes or less. And who wouldn't want that? Factor is your solution for fast premium meals without the need for cooking. Get started today and fuel up for your spring and summer goals. What are you waiting for? Head to factormeals.com slash golden50 and use code golden50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code golden50 at factormeals.com slash golden50 to get 50% off plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. That's code GOLDEN50 at factormeals.com slash GOLDEN50 to get 50% off plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. How often have you thought about learning a new language only to be stopped by that memory of yours from the last time you tried to learn a language when it didn't go so well? Okay, maybe it wasn't a language that you were interested in learning, or perhaps all those poorly written textbooks in your sixth grade class weren't that well written after all. I have a great tip for you. It's called Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program around, available on desktop or app, no matter where you choose to learn it or what platform you choose to learn on, Rosetta Stone works and it truly immerses you in the language you choose to learn quicker and easier than you ever imagined to. Maybe you're getting ready to travel abroad this summer and you want to learn a bit of Portuguese, let's say, before your trip. Rosetta Stone can help. I know this firsthand as I did just this before traveling to Portugal last year. I learned Portuguese through Rosetta Stone, and by doing so, I not only got a better grasp of the spoken language of Portugal, but it got me very excited for the trip itself before I went. They even have a true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation as you are learning, too. They've got you covered. Rosetta Stone's trusted experts are the real deal. They've been helping people just like you for over 30 years helping millions of people to learn Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and my favorite, Portuguese. The lessons are five to 10 minutes long and include practical exercises so that you can pick up the language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. No English translations either, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in the language you are focused on, helping you get the long, term retention you are looking for. And who wouldn't want that? Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. 
For a very limited time, the Kara Golden Show listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. That's awesome. Well, I, my daughter was going to school in Dublin for the last year. And so we went up to Belfast and it was, uh, you know, it was amazing to finally go up and see, you know, that part of the world. And actually the, I'm huge into street art. And so the street art in Belfast is like, I think some of the best in, in, Europe, I've ever yeah. seen. I mean, yeah. they're deeply historical. Like, I could bore you senseless right now, but I, I literally wrote a whole set of papers for my general studies AS level about the murals of Ireland, and and they're and you know really quickly they're very the the more the Irish so the Catholic side have a lot of female imagery. So Mother Ireland, and you see Mother Ireland everything from kind of a very young beautiful woman all the way through to the kind of the old crone and the kind of haggard woman taken down, you know, by this oppressive other, um, you know, effectively uh, the other country that claimed sovereignty. And then on the, on the Protestant side, it's very masculine imagery is what you'll see, right? Because it's led by King Billy crossing the Boyne and a lot of male war. So true. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, fascinating to see those things try to merge and talk about, you know, learning right from my mother's knee to communities who were at war. But, you know, when the shit hit the fan, frankly, it was your neighbors who took care of you. And right now, it's actually those same neighbors, because my parents have never moved and the neighbors have never moved. It's who I check in, like when I need something really kind of last minute, desperately for my mom and dad, it's those same people who I'm still, you know, texting or calling and saying, hey, could you run and get this prescription for my mom? Or they're really short of this. Could you go to the supermarket for them? So it's it's an incredible background. Has Nextdoor developed a, an office there? Um, we have an office in London. So we are in 11 countries, um, quite a lot in EMEA, um, but our base right now is London. We do have one person in Dublin now. Um, who's our wonderful compliance person we love dearly. Um, I'd love to see us build out a presence. But I mean, you know, with tech companies more and more, it's a big debate post COVID-19. How much do we really need people physically in offices? Or could we actually start to make more use of people at a distance? And I think there's incredible talent, for example, in a place like Belfast, tech talent, and just overall business talent, that's probably not getting utilized the way it should. So maybe this will actually be a silver lining for a whole country. How do you think people are feeling? I mean, you've got a lot of friends there still about Brexit and everything going on with that. Yeah, I mean, for Northern Ireland, that is a very tough topic because it brings back all of the potential, right, for violence and war again. So what's been great about the last, you know, since the Good Friday Agreement, so the last 20 years, has been the fact that the border kind of disappeared. It's still technically there, but like you would not know it. Like when you drive from the north, I live on the border, so you, yeah. you just, you're just driving, right? And the only thing that changes, frankly, is that in Ireland, they, this, the street signs are green, um, like the thing that tells you how fast you can go, and they're in kilometers, so they, you know, they made it onto the metric system. And in Northern Ireland, everything's still red and you're in miles. And the idea, like if you think about what happened with the border, right, the minute you have a border and someone patrolling a border, then you have someone who's a potential target for the other side. And, you know, that's how these things have escalated. And so I think there's a lot of trepidation still, but, you know, they're a pragmatic crew. And I think in the end, you know, people are trying to move on and recognize that, you know, we don't want to lose lives and we don't want to lose economic health and prosperity. And the minute we fall back into a war zone, that all goes away. So my hope is we'll find a pragmatic solution at the end. I, I totally agree. So, so we're going to jump in and right before we come back to next door. So you start in finance. Mm -hmm. And you were, uh, were, were you at Goldman or? Yeah, Gold, Goldman was like the first world finance. I'd been at McKinsey. So I was actually an engineer. Always have loved numbers. Um, I always joke that, you know, I've never seen a number I didn't like. 
Um, and that's the thing you'll hear me say to my teams all the time is like, that's a number without context, or let's torture the numbers some more because they'll give us great insights. So I started at McKinsey. I came out to the US to business school, actually to Stanford, and ended up staying. And that's when I joined Goldman and really kind of started a finance career. And it was somewhat unintentional, honestly. The, the head of the Stanford Business School, who's still a dear friend to this day, was in fact angry with me for not going into an operating role. And particularly because, you know, Dan was the height of the tech bubble. So he, Garth thought I was nuts. But, you know, I, again, back to pragmatism. I had debt that I had to pay off and I needed a visa because I am an immigrant, as you pointed out, and I really wanted to stay. Um, and so I took a pragmatic step saying, if I go to a place like Goldman, you know, first of all, I will get paid more in cash, not equity, so I can pay off all this debt stuff. And you know, they would help me, a very sophisticated company would help me with my immigration. And the idea was I'd do that for two or three years, still be a great grounding, great way to start your career. And then I would, you know, jump off the ship and go into you know, the startup world or more the operating side. And, you know, a decade plus later, I was still in finance, which I think a lot about, you know, as I build a company now, what is it that kept me there? And how do I kind of use some of that pattern for my own employees? Because what Goldman did well was they always stretched me. There was always like a new, every time I get comfortable, they would throw some new curveball completely at me, like a different part of the organization a different form of coverage of an equity analyst for a long time, but it was incredibly stimulating. And so you know, I certainly don't regret that period of my life, although I think I'm a much better operator than I am a stock market analyst, frankly. And how did you then jump over to Salesforce? Yeah, so you know, at the end of a decade, I, you know, I've had my two children, so we shouldn't forget that period of your life where you kind of do it all, and it's kind of, frankly, a little nuts. And I, you know, the financial crisis had happened and I really started to lose some faith in the why of banks and the financial system. Like I wasn't really sure I believed what the purpose was. And so going through that kind of more crisis mode, I mean, I felt blessed enough that I kind of just said, okay, I'm going to take a step back and I'm actually going to take some time off. I'm going to, you know, really spend time with my kids, all the things you should do in life. And of course, the minute I quote unquote retired, uh, you know, being the personality I am, I was getting a lot of inbounds of people saying, oh, like, wow, you know, I'd love you to come be the CFO or whatever. And then I got completely into both kind of FOMO and fear. So I FOMO in the fear of missing out on something, but also this kind of fear of like not being good enough for anything. You know, I was like, I don't think I'm qualified. I would say all the time to my husband, I don't think I'm qualified for anything. Like, I don't think I can do anything else. And he was like, that's crazy. And so thus began like a pretty frenetic two to three month period of my life where I was trying to decide what next. And I think the best, you know, some of the best piece of advice at that time, one was to go back to kind of first principles. So not just what do you want to do, because people tend to talk about their career in terms of like a title, but what are you actually really good at? Um, and kind of, I think getting to the essence of yourself is, is hard. Um, you know, I would say I'm, I'm very numerate. I, I do love analyzing things. I'm also a, a big communicator. I, you know, I think I've learned that over time I can be a good leader because I think I can motivate people well. I probably wouldn't have said it at the time because frankly, I hadn't really managed that many people. But I think getting to the essence of your skill set, so of both what you're good at what actually is needed in the world, like what, what gives you passion and what will what you'll get paid for. <laughs> like finding the intersections of those pieces of your life, I think is really important. And actually there's a whole framework called the Ikigai that's exactly on that point. Um, the other thing that was going on in that period, which is worth a note, I think particularly for this podcast, is I had a very dear friend at Goldman and she was had time off because she was dealing with breast cancer. And I think I'd hike a lot with her. And you know, I love to hike since we meet on trails all the time. But I think hiking with her also brought about kind of a very profound personal kind of piece too of, wow, this life thing isn't necessarily super long. I wasn't being faced with my own mortality, but I was definitely watching her struggling with what it was like to know that potentially you were going to die. Um, 
And I think the coming together of those two things really made me rethink like the willingness to go take a big risk and do something different. And in the long story short, Mark Benioff had been a mentor um, while I was at Goldman. I kind of talked to Mark about different alternates and Mark being Mark was like, just come work with me. Why would you go work for all these startups? You'll learn far more at Salesforce, you know, and Mark is a great kind of talent collector. He doesn't overly worry himself with what's the role or where are they going to fit. It's a little Darwinian. He collects people that he thinks are smart and can do stuff. And then he kind of throws you in and, and then you kind of create your job in a way in that company. And I think it's part of what's made Salesforce an incredible company, not just in terms of the financial outcome, but in terms of the culture and how that company has been creative and innovative over time. Well, obviously Benioff is a great leader, but I think you're not only a great leader, but you're also a builder. And, you know, it's, it's interesting. I didn't realize that you initially went to school to be an engineer and that's, you know, I, I think that's super interesting because you had that kind of in your, in your blood or some sort of passion for building. Right. Yeah. And then you went on, you know, to do the finance side and then, you know, really were instrumental and, in, and in being part of, you know, fairly early team at, at Salesforce to go and build that, which is so huge. And then, you went over to Square, um, which is the Twitter company, right? Uh, so no, the much better side. We're, we're, we're yeah, favorite. He doesn't like to say it publicly, but truly, Square is his favorite. <laughs> well, I, I, um, I definitely. When you moved, I guess did you move? Were you still at Salesforce when you went over? Yeah. So I was. I'd been at Salesforce for about a year and a half, and frankly. You know, I was in no way done with what I needed to do. And I was having a complete blast. And to your point, Salesforce was, I think, about 5,000 people on its way to, I can't remember Salesforce is now, like 30,000 people. Um, but it was in, like, hyper-growth mode. And suddenly, Square came knocking and was 200 people. And even showing up, like, even from Salesforce, where I, I had a team of probably about 100 people, and showing up at Salesforce, or sorry, at Square, and I think I had like seven people on my team. And frankly, I didn't really, I could not do what most of them did. Like I was the CFO, but I had like the payroll person, the head of chargebacks, which is something I, I grew to learn a lot about, didn't really know anything about when I joined Square. Um, and then the controller, and the tiny little controllers org. And they were all doing jobs that are incredibly important, but like it was not my expertise. Like I kept saying to Jack, like if you're looking for kind of an accountant and a kind of a traditional CFO, I am just not your person. Um, however, I do think the whole CFO role can be much more reimagined to be like a true partner um, to the CEO, to be much more of an operator. And again, Jack, a little bit like um, Mark, does not pigeonhole people. Like he is all about just throwing stuff at you. Like within like about six months, like I think, you know, I had half the company at one stage and that was, you know, we'd, we'd made a personnel change. And so some of it was, you know, I said people like when you're in the, in the thrust of like kind of crisis mode, particularly around people and how you manage, I have a little two by two in my head, which is like, what am I, what am I good at? What am I not good at? And what am I passionate about? What am I not passionate about? So if you're not good at something and not passionate about it, and it's important, like you need to go hire someone like yesterday. So that should almost be your first place. If there's something you're really good at and really passionate about, and it is important to the organization, in some ways, like you can hold on to that for long periods of time. Um, maybe ultimately you need to hire in that spot. But starting to parse like how you're going to organize you know, where you need help, where you can do it yourself for a period of time. Like, you know, even in that you're good at it, but not passionate about it, that's fine to do for periods of time. And what I often find is though people keep doing it and it kind of sucks the life out of them. Like it takes away their joy, which is an incredibly, like don't underestimate how potent joy is to give you longevity in a career or at a company or, you know, doing what you're doing. Because you know, every job at the end of the day, you are exhausted. Like I was feel wrung out, but I want to feel wrung out doing something that I really loved as opposed to, you know, if the, if the highs are getting lower and the lows are getting lower, that is a red flag that you're not going to be able to keep up this marathon. 
Um, and you know, so you need to be very careful to also offload some of those tasks over time. When you're really good at something, the organization will struggle with you because the org will want you to keep doing it because you're really good at it. But I think you need to be very mindful of your own, you know, your own morale and your own joy um, to kind of keep up that energy over time. And so how do you do that? Like, how, how do you, how, so let's say you've been working in finance for, you know, the last 10, 15 years and kind of doing the same stuff and, and good at it, right? Um, but you want to go into an operating role or, um, and sort of switch gears to ultimately grow. I mean, do you, how do you think you can, what do you think is the best kind of quick steps to be able to do that? Yeah, so, I mean, first you kind of really need to look yourself in the eye and say, I'm ready to take a risk and make a jump. I, I you know, when I first came out of Goldman, I feel like I would have like endless copies with people who were like mulling on this idea, but it, it kind of is clear within about half an hour that they're not going to take that risk, and, and which is totally fine, by the way. But I think you have to know that you are going to have to take a leap. It's like, you know, standing on the diving board. Like, there's only one way to get in the pool. Like, there's no other, you can't crawl down, that, like you have to jump. Um, I think the second thing goes back to what I said earlier about really thinking about the essence of who you are, like what you love to do, but also what you're good at. And just giving yourself space. Like if I gave you a project that said, Kara, go do some research on what is Hint good at and so on you would go off and you would take time and you'd have some meetings and you would interview people and so on. And yet when people are asked to do that about themselves, they don't follow, like it's almost like they don't think about it as something they should give any time to. So I actually ask people to, you know, figure out when you're at your best for me, it's the morning and set aside, you know, half an hour, an hour, depending on like where you are, like I don't need to set aside an hour every morning to kind of find myself at the moment, but I do try to be diligent about once a quarter taking a step back and, and, and frankly writing it down, like you know, going through like what are you working on, what, where are your skills, like how are those progressing? So I think that's a very tangible step. So first of all, decide that you're really thinking about taking that risk and then second, get to the essence of you. And a lot of it is not just in your own head, but you should go interview people. Like literally ask people, when you think of me, like what do you think I'm great at? Um, what do you think I'm like not great at? Yeah, what are, what are you missing? Oh, no, I think that that's yeah. completely valid and, and great feedback to get from anybody as you, as you go along the way. So, but also working for great people that actually, you know, you said it about Jack and I, I I think I shared with you a few years ago when I saw him on stage and he brought you up and you know what that you were so huge he believed in in the success of Square and you know I think being having somebody that really you know doesn't force you to stay in the lanes right and kind of allows you to you know, grow and uh, along the way is just so critical. Working for the right people, I think, is just is just absolutely critical, which you've done. Yeah, and by the way, like, it doesn't just happen randomly. I mean, there has to be the beginning where you take the risk and you work with the person, but, like, very quickly in organizations, you can kind of see who are the managers that truly delegate, like, get you out over the edge of your skis so that you're really in that learning zone. And, like, when you find those people, like, run to them um and offer yourself up like hey i'd love to work for you like don't be shy on that front and i do think following people is also completely okay and a good thing to do like you want to be careful that you're not just you're not doing it out of just purely kind of a comfort blanket motion but i think if you've found a great manager particularly in a world where people now do change jobs more frequently i think following them to a couple of places can actually be great for your career too so yeah, I mean, I think it is who you are, the essence, be willing to take the risk, find out the essence of who you are, find great people to work for, and then you've got to just throw yourself in. I mean, the only other thing I'd say is often when people are at that moment, I tell them, hey, and by the way, the first thing you go to is probably not going to work out, and you can kind of see their whole face goes, what is she talking about? But what I've seen is that often that first thing you go to, particularly if you've had a longer piece of your career somewhere, it, it almost feels too jarring for you that often people go for a year or a year and a half 
And it's actually the jump they make after that becomes almost the thing that has more longevity to it. Uh, you know, and I, it wasn't that I didn't think Salesforce wasn't for me, but it wasn't perfectly what I was looking for at that time. Like what I loved about Square was I did passionately love finance. So I loved that industry and I loved tech. And being able to find the overlap of both where I could use both skills versus Salesforce, I got the tech piece, but I you know, kind of lost the, the finance. Yeah, it worked in finance, but it wasn't the same as being in the finance industry. But like, don't get so caught up in that first thing you go to. Like, just think about a place that's gonna maximize your learning. It's interesting because when I was at AOL way, way back when, I mean, I was there in the pretty early stages of it. I wasn't there from, you know, day one, but it was, I don't know, less than a hundred people there at the time until it was thousands of people. And I realized that once it got to a certain size and that I, they needed people who were actually executors versus people who were you know disruptors developers and so it actually had nothing to do with the company it had more to do with me saying what i ultimately wanted to do and so i talk a lot about this and i see a little bit of you in that as well and and then you made a jump from square once it got moving a little bit more to to the CEO role of your first CEO role, which I was so excited when I heard the news. So tell us all about Nextdoor. I feel like everybody knows about Nextdoor. I'm such, I am the biggest Nextdoor advocate. I tell people all the time about Nextdoor and they're like, well, what, why would I use Nextdoor? And I'm like, for lots of different things. I mean, everything from, you know, hey, can you help me? Um, find a mechanic or somebody to power wash my driveway um, to, uh, you know, I didn't realize that you went to the same school in our area where we are in Marin County. There always seems to be, hey, I saw a, you know, coyote walking down the street. Just be careful. You know, there's just all kinds of you know, great stuff that is on there. So talk to me about that. You weren't the founder. You came in afterwards. Um, and so talk to me a little bit about, you know, you've been at Nextdoor now, is it two years? Or? A year and a half. A year and a half, okay. So yeah, so I, and I definitely get to stand on the shoulders of giants because our we have three co-founders. Um, Nero sits on our board, Sarah is a board observer, and then Prakash, she still works alongside me on my executive team. Um, and we get the benefit of their perspectives a lot. And what they started out to do was incredibly hard, um, right? They wanted to create a, a neighbor, a, a graph, a local graph of people who actually mostly don't really know each other. In fact, the, the founding drive was a Pew, a Pew Research study that showed that you know something like 27% of Americans didn't know a single neighbor, and the number that even you just say one was also a pretty dramatic percentage. And yet, when you look at research on the other side, this idea of strong weak ties, um, Mark Grandetti wrote a lot of the research on it, the idea of the people who are not related to us or not our friends, like not like my girlfriends in Northern Ireland, but are like the people we bump into day, day to day, the barista or the, the UPS person or you know the, the local crossing guard, like they have an incredible impact just on how we feel about like our health or the, the way kindness impacts us. And so I think a lot of us have kind of thrown that away in this new connected world, you know, where everything's very global. I think we've forgotten about this power of proximity. And the, you know, the crazy thing about COVID-19 is I felt I was evangelizing this a lot pre the coronavirus happening. And I think now everyone is kind of back in the mode of like, oh yeah, my neighbors, I remember, I remember those are the people I want to help. Maybe they're elderly, or those are the people, you know, whose kids go out and draw chalk drawings that make me happy. Um, they're the people I can lean on in an emergency, but also just the people I can lean on for great recommendations. So when, when Nextdoor came calling, it, again, it was not a very easy decision. I loved my job at Square. Like I get calls all the time and I'd say, no, I have, I have the best CFO job ever, right? There's no better CFO job out there. But I was definitely intrigued by a CEO job and I was definitely intrigued by this idea of community. 
And I, you know, if I can go to the first, the CEO, not just for the sake of being a CEO, but I do feel that it, you, you, know, you can't be what you can't see. And I feel like we have to set up role models for our girls, which we're doing, to show that women can lead. And of course, we're going to have screw ups and not everything will be perfect. But in the end, we've got to get in the seat because I spend a lot of time with ladies who launch giving amazing women out there, entrepreneurs, like a lot of like, go for it, take the risk. And there I was maybe not going to take the risk myself. So there was just a moment where I felt it was the right thing to do kind of where I was at in my career, but also just um, personally, like how I wanted to show up in the world and mentor in kind of a broader way, um, if nothing else, just through showing. Um, on the community side, it was super intriguing because it linked back to that whole like beginning of life of Northern Ireland being with community. I I do think that, you know, and even as, as I've kind of settled into seat at next door, I find even just personally, my willingness to talk to someone in the street, smile at someone, you know, offer help even when I maybe don't know the person has gone way up, which is kind of the old me before I became I'm not so much jaded, but more afraid in the world, right? When you're a young woman and you leave home and, you know, I would still be talking to people and then like that weirdo would like follow me home. And so I feel like I really shut that part of myself off out of self-preservation. And it feels really good at this stage of my life to kind of reopen that whole feeling up. And it does have a remarkable impact on your health and how you feel. And so if I can kind of give that gift back now to this local graph of neighbors today in 11 countries, 260,000 neighborhoods, right? It's not small numbers anymore. I think we can have a remarkable impact on the health of society beyond just the pure utility of next door. I think that's, that's absolutely true. So you're in, so you're obviously in a bunch of different countries, but in the U S if somebody wants to go on, they just go nextdoor.com. There's, um, there's no charge for it. You, just put in your address. I, I know the whole, we'll hire you. Yeah, no, it's, it's super, super easy. And as I tell people, it's, you know, as active as you want to be, you um, will get the most out of it. So that's exactly right. Yeah. And you don't know the moment, like you might lose a pet, you might need some advice about like, right now, I'd love some advice on what to do with two teenagers through the summer, because everything that I thought we were going to do is no longer happening. So I've been noodling on like, what's my post at to my neighborhood? Because we're going to have to do things that are local. And so again, it comes back to I think this power of the local graph is really shining through. There's also, I mean, the you know where the the meld of Square plus Nextdoor comes together is is small businesses, um, which has been a place I've been so passionate about for the last decade plus of my life. And it goes back to being builders. Like I love how small businesses, local businesses are such builders and like the way they come up with their concepts and their ideas. And I think the way we're gonna get them back on their feet right now is like bringing neighbors, um, you know, to the party, like literally, how can you help this restaurant? Well, maybe they're not open, but let's do pickup or let's do delivery. How can you help your hair salon, right? I literally have bought Patricia, my amazing hairstylist, you might not believe it, but out of all her products, like she didn't want me to buy a gift card, she's not open. So I'm like, what else can I do? And I think that I see this all the time right now that there's a lot of neighbors wanting to help neighbors because it's in our in our vested interest to make sure those Absolutely. local businesses survive, right? We don't want to live in like, you know, a, just a, a, you know, a totally mundane area with no local flavor. And those businesses are so part of that. It's, it's so funny. I was just thinking about this. My mom, when I moved to New York right after college, my mom said to me, don't forget if you need to go to a dry cleaner or the grocery store, just um, be sure to go local. Yeah. And, I, and she said it a few times to a point where I was like, why are you nervous that I'm going to go far away or something and something's going to happen to me in New York City? And she said, no, because your neighborhood will be safer if the businesses around you survive. And so even if they're a little bit more expensive, that's okay. Like you need to continue to build that. And I mean, it's funny because I've told so many people the story of, about her and sort of her comments and, you know, she, she really, she believed it. And, you know, and she believed that 
I, I think what's so interesting about Nextdoor is that you guys have been, I think on the forefront of, you know, as we went into COVID time, you guys have really been in the forefront of the importance of a, you know, virtual community, right? So I get advice for, you know, power washing my sidewalk from a neighbor who lives a few doors down from me, who I have never met, right? Like I've, I've emailed back and forth or they, they post, oh, I had this guy come, he's super nice, great, you know, and, and it's so interesting, you know, to think about that, about next door. You guys have just been really operating virtually and, and talking about virtual without actually even using that word, maybe. Yeah. You know, yeah. It, it's, it, it's fascinating. So what do you think is kind of the, the current state of businesses as we're, you know, hopefully exiting or maybe 70% exiting, you know, it, it, towards this, this new future. What are your thoughts on the new ways of business as we're going forward? Yeah, I mean, I think as leaders, the term I use with my team all the time is what is the emergent theme? So don't just think about like back to normal. Like let's not even use phrases like that because it implies that it's just all going to be the same again. And I think, first of all, that would be a complete missed opportunity if that does become the case. I mean, in terms of emergent themes that I see, um, I definitely profoundly different perspective on local. I do think more people will work from home um, because in this great experiment that we've all been in, and, and frankly, I was not a huge supporter of work from home pre this, and now I'm like, wow, we are so productive. So I can imagine more people working from home. Maybe it's not five days a week, but maybe it's like three days a week or something. So I think your appreciation and your need for local um, is going to skyrocket. I think there is an emerging theme around the, the more uh, conscious consumer. So I think the other thing we've all learned sitting at home, right, is if we don't need all the clothes in our wardrobe, I certainly don't, I don't know if I need all the high heels I have, although I'll be hard pressed to get rid of any of them. They're my favorite thing. Here, I have not put on zip pants for 60 days and I am so proud of that. Right? Like I'm like living in my Lululemon, oh, yeah. you know, workout pants all day long. I always so. cut my high heels every day when I leave and put on my flip flops. Um, but just so this, this idea of like a more conscious consumer, I mean, part of it will be driven by economic need, right? We are going through a much tougher time from an overall global macro backdrop. Um, but it'd be interesting to see, you know, thing, trends we see on the platform that speak to this are things like bartering or on the rise. For sale and free, which is our classifieds business, is skyrocketing. Part of it is because everyone's been at home, so there's not a garage, spare bedroom that hasn't been cleaned out. But I think people are also viewing it as a place to potentially make a little bit of extra money on the side. Um, and I think that's good for the world, right? It's a much better idea of reuse, repurpose, recycle. You know, beyond that, it's, it's interesting to think about things like privacy, right? As we bring people back to work, Right? Are we going to insist on health checks and temperature checks? Are we going, we're going to want to trade right, to do this all safely? And I actually think this is a place where someone like Governor Newsom is doing a good job. Right? We know how much testing we need to do, but we also need tracers. So if someone tests positive, we can also quickly trace who they have interacted with so we can create a little quarantine zone so that a hotspot doesn't suddenly emerge. Um, but there's big ramifications for privacy and all of that. Like, you know, we, I heard someone say at the beginning of all of this, like, there's no way, you know, U.S. people will ever wear masks. That's just not something we do. <laughs> it's just not true. Turns out we're very creative with our masks, which I do love, <laughs> including for Hint. Um, but, you know, it's, again, it goes back to this idea that humans are very malleable and very quickly will respond. Um, and so the privacy angle to me is also kind of a, an interesting one, I mean, interesting in that I think it has both pros and cons as we come back. But those are just some of the things that are top of mind for me right now. Well, I think health is, you know, I've, I've been talking about this for the last 15 years. It's, it's yes. you know, it doesn't matter what your gender is, where you live, how much money you have, what your education level is. If you don't have your health, totally. and you've touched on that a little bit, it's, it's really, you know, it really drives decisions. Yeah. And so, you know, the mask decision, I think, is, is uh, you know, there, there are people that are like, we've got to go back to work now, we've got to do this. But I think it really, like, health or this appearance of health, I think, is, is kind of the core thing 
that sits, you know, out there for people. So it's, uh, it's, it's very, very interesting. And I'm sure people are looking in terms of community as well. I saw a posting on Nextdoor the other day saying, you know, can we all work together to get testing in our, you know, small little community in Ross, San Anselmo, Kentfield area. And, you know, it'd be great. So to, to, to do that. So I mean, the one, other, the one other side of health that I would love people to think about that are listening is there has been this wonderful sense of togetherness and health. And so I think a lot of parts of our community, particularly the elderly or those that are, are more ill, have kind of in some ways come to the forefront, right? In the same way that shelter or this whole crisis has brought to the forefront the people who truly are on the front line, right? The doctors, the nurses, but then the less obvious, like the grocery store clerk or the, the person who works in, in, an, in an elderly home, for example. But how do we make sure that as we do go back to the office, whatever that looks like, that we don't kind of forget about them all again, right? There's an incredible loneliness already in those, in those parts of our communities. And I think it could be even more um, exacerbated by what's going on if there's a feeling of like, wow, I was lonely before, but now I can't even really leave home. Like my mom is, you know, coming up to 80. She has really severe chronic um, uh, COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disorder, right? So she is someone who cannot afford to leave the house until there's a vaccine. And I worry very deeply about her feeling like society has kind of thrown her to one side. And loneliness, right, is often not a disease we talk very openly about, right? We talk about diabetes and we talk about obesity and we talk about opioid crisis. But loneliness is an incredible kind of insidious kind of disease in all of our communities. And so I just hope that we've learned something through this crisis that doesn't let us forget the people who really do need our help, even if it's just a quick phone call or a quick check-in, you know, a couple of times a week. Yeah, and I feel like I, I also hear it from, you know, friends of mine who are living alone, mm -hmm. right, through this process, and they don't, you know, go into the office, and that was really their socialization, right? And um, so I think that that's, that's just so critical to be aware of that. So, so um, last but not least, by any stretch, ladies who launch. So talk to me a little bit about this initiative and how do people get come and, and get more involved in this? Thank you. So um, we co-founded Ladies Who Launch, so we being Kelly McGonigal and myself, my co-founder, about five, six years ago. And it was really, it's oriented towards female uh, entrepreneurs starting, running, growing their own businesses. It's very much Main Street, so it's not about tech, although we welcome all. But I'm really thinking about the cupcake maker, the local maybe tax person, um, the woman who wants to start her own baby clothing, you know, organic, um, but really geared towards those women. And there are three pillars to it. Um, interestingly, community was one. The second was education. And the third is inspiration. And so we did set it up as an event series. And we've done events all over the world. We've been to Sydney, London. We just did one in Stockholm last year. Um, I came off one in Belfast right before um, Shelter in Place went into action here in the U.S. So it really was about bringing women together in local communities um, to drive support and mentorship for each other. And then also to get amazing, you know, female entrepreneurs who really have seen tremendous success to talk to them. And you, of course, did that and did that magnificently here in San Francisco. Now, I love speaking at it. You were amazing. You were still to this day, my daughter is like, oh, you're so, you're so great. <laughs> but, um, you know, but we've also had to pivot too because we were an in real life event space nonprofit. And so, thanks now, we have a fantastic executive director who came on at the beginning of the year. Julie has really quickly pivoted us to things like we're doing a lunch series to play off the pun in our name. So, lunch with ladies who launch. Um, and we've kind of come through the crisis with a lot of our women, right? From the initial, like, what the hell do you do in the first couple of weeks to like, how are you not thinking about, you know, taking your business back out of shelter in place? But I think it's unlocked for us scale that we didn't have before. So, you know, again, in the learning of all of this, like we don't want to just go back to doing what we did before. I think with Ladies Who Launch, we're really going to think about, okay, now we can do a lot virtually as well. Now, 
it shouldn't totally subsume because there's a lot that happens in real life. I think particularly when women can get together one-on-one or three-on-one and get mentorship, like we don't want to lose that special sauce. But I think this gives us a whole new way to unlock the way to get our message out in the world. Right? We did a podcast last week with um, Rani, who was based in, in uh, Australia and, and runs a nonprofit called Oz Harvest with um, the founder CEO of Eagle Products here in Britain, oh, actually. Yes. <laughs> and you know, we would never have been able to have had a panel with those two women except that we could now do it virtually um, and have them come in from all parts of the globe. So I think it's a good learning for us about how to pivot to thrive. I love it. That's great. So I ask everybody, uh, all of our guests, two more questions. Uh, first of all, what is your favorite hint flavor? My favorite? Oh, I am definitely a, like I'm much more of a citrusy hint flavor gal. So I like, I still like kind of my more lemons and my grapefruity flavors. Um, I don't love the sweeter ones. We have both of those. I know. So. I know. <laughs> so, yes. And what makes you unstoppable? So when I knew I was doing this podcast, I actually did this as a pop question at the dining room table for my whole family. And the <laughs> two it. things, so we actually did what makes everyone unstoppable. But for me, the two things that we felt stood out, um, and I feel st stands out, one is hard work. Like, I don't want to underestimate the power of working hard to get to what you want to do. Um, you know, I, and, and the second is to be persistent. You know, that my kids just say that to me, like, mom never gives up. And, you know, part of it is even when I'm hiking, right, I always want to take the path that goes further up the mountain or get you higher up. And so I think when you put those two things together, that can hopefully create an unstoppable force. I will add one more thing. Your attitude is you are always very positive, right? Like you're, I mean, you, you don't sort of, brush things under the rug you're really trying to you know power through things and look at things and and because of that you're so inspiring and and really contagious um kind of yeah and and i mean that because i think that that is really really important for people to try and figure out how do you get there right because i think that's people want to work with that they want to be led by that and i think it's just super super important so, the world belongs to optimists i say that all yeah. the time to, to the whole team i i totally agree so where do people well first of all nextdoor.com ladies who launch Okay, and then Sarah Fryer uh, on social. Uh, I'm uh, actually at the Fryley is how you'll find me on Twitter, which I tend to be more on Instagram is Sarah.Fryer. Um, you'll find me through next door there too. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Sarah. This was really, really inspiring and I learned a few things as well and very, very excited to see you again on the trails. Perfect, thanks a lot. like what you heard, please help spread the word and leave us a review. You can also follow along with me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn at Kara Golden. Do you have a question for me or want to nominate an innovator to Spotlight? Please talk to me at Kara Golden on Twitter. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, be unstoppable. unstoppable.